how do our thoughts create the ego? Essentially, how do our thoughts create this illusion of a permanent self that we seem to defend our entire lives as if it is real and lasting? First, we have to explore the nature of thoughts themselves and where else to look but the ancient East. They explored the nature of thoughts and their relationship to this illusion of a separate self more than anyone else in history. Now, these sorts of questions I'm often asked a lot, and a lot of people ask me, how do thoughts relate to the ego and the development of this separate self? And a lot of people use a spiritual master or as a guru as their template because they ask me, now, does a guru or a spiritual master still have thoughts after enlightenment? Of course, they still have thoughts. Thoughts persist constantly. It's a part of human cognition. Now, I would beware of any guru or spiritual master who said they don't think or don't have thoughts. And I know a few of them, but please beware of them because thoughts still do persist. But the difference is that the spiritual master has a different relationship to thoughts than you and I. You will find out today why thoughts actually don't bother a spiritual master or someone who is entrenched deeply in spiritual practice, which also answers why they have no strong sense of ego identity. Now, to think of thoughts, we have to think of them a little bit differently because a lot of us are under the impression that thoughts is this continuous thing which just runs like this, like a continual line. A linear line which you know thought, 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 and they're all connected but in the Eastern traditions they don't think of thoughts in that way in the East thoughts are like anything else in nature they grow of themselves now they don't grow of themselves as like a interconnected net building our neural network they grow one thought at a time one thought at a time one thought at a time now this is what we would call non-dual thoughts or non-dual thinking in Eastern philosophy. So from the Eastern perspective, we have this spontaneous non-dual thought, not a continuation of thoughts. So from the East, from this perspective, thoughts themselves are not the problem. The real problem with thoughts then, which the East expose, is when we begin to link our thoughts together, where we have this process of one thought after another, which links in a series, creating this chain of thoughts, which creates this continuity of thinking, which creates this illusion of a self. Now, when we think of that, think of a chain. This is how we normally think how we think and where it's interconnected. And we have this continuity of one after another, after another, after another, linked in this chain. Whereas in the East, they think of thoughts, just look, just think of separate circles, separate circles, separate circles, separate circles. The thoughts are just bubbling up, bubbling up, bubbling up naturally. But we are in the habit of linking our thoughts, creating this continuity of thoughts, which creates this illusion of a self or an ego. So the mind's habit to link thoughts is not just the problem. We have to also look at memory and we have to also look at the Eastern model of mind. If we look at samskaras, subliminal imprints or mental impressions, vasanas, latent tendencies and habitual ways, and then also karma action. So what we see there is we have, you know, from the deep well of the subconscious, the samskaras, and that deep memory, that muscle memory, connecting with thoughts, creating this continuity, which then affects our habits, which then affects our 
actions, our karma. So there is that problem as well, on top of the way that our mind is habitually operating or functioning because of our certain educational training and because of our certain training just in ordinary life from our society and our culture. We think of thoughts then as dependent on other thoughts or you know external phenomena. We think of thoughts in that manner where they, they are dependent on memory, upon other thoughts linking together. This is, how we, this is how we generally think about thinking itself. But a thought naturally from the Eastern perspective is unsupported. It doesn't actually depend on anything else. It's, they call this actually the unsupported thought in Buddhism. This is the un, unsupported thought where a thought just arises and if your mind has the clarity to just see the thought without linking it up with other thoughts or memory, it just disappears. So we have this process in our mind where thought, 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 thought. It's not that a spiritual master doesn't have the thoughts. They have that as well. They, the Buddhist monks have that as well. But the glue is not there. So the thoughts are happening one at a, at a time. And there's no linkage creating this illusion of a self. So a thought is essentially unsupported when it is not experienced as dependent on anything else. So we have to really understand that, that thoughts are not linked up in a series. Thoughts themselves arise of themselves without being dependent upon anything else. This is actually the true nature of thoughts themselves. And you come to understand this when you begin to become engaged more in meditation and going deeper into your meditation and deeper into your own self-inquiry. When we think of thoughts, the links essentially are not connected. So we have to actually come to that conclusion. And a lot of people probably would argue, yeah, but the next thought is like this and the next thought is like this. But you're also mixing in then your memory and everything and also your habitual way of thinking, your habitual way of your mind functioning, which latches onto the thought, then drags it out and pulls it out. And then next minute, you've got this series of thoughts that takes you down the rabbit hole of being who you are and experiencing the life that you think is the result of who you are. The great Zen scholar D.T. Suzuki explains this understanding of thoughts in the East springing up non-dually and not linking up in a series of thoughts through his conception of prajna. It is important to note here that prajna wants to see its diction quickly apprehended, giving us no intervening moment for reflection or analysis or interpretation. Prajna for this reason is frequently likened to a flash of lightning or to a spark from two striking pieces of flint. Quickness does not refer to progress of time. It means immediacy, absence of deliberation, no allowance for an intervening proposition, no passing from premises to conclusion. This understanding of the unsupported thought, these non-dual thoughts, was the inspiration behind Zen koans in Zen Buddhism. Zen koans, for those of you who do not know, are riddles and questions that the master gives the students to test them in their progress in Zen. Now, because Zen understands this, these koans are designed 
to evoke that unsupported thought. It's trying to break up those linkages of thoughts and trying to get people to act spontaneously. This is why in Zen Buddhism, hesitation is often criticized and someone who is immediate is, is praised no matter how nonsensical their response is. The reason for this is because hesitation indicates that someone is caught in a logical series of thoughts. They're thinking about something. Their, their conclusion is too contrived. This is why hesitation is criticized in Zen Buddhism, because they understand that when you are hesitant, you are identifying with a logical series of thoughts, which are making you think too much about a problem without being spontaneous and being appropriate to whatever the situation is needed. So hesitation indicates a logical train of thoughts or a self-conscious paralysis of all thought. And if you watch towards the end, I'll explain to you how and why this process actually goes beyond just being immediate, but also goes to the point of being immediate and appropriate to each and every situation. But coming back to the this linkage of thoughts, we have to ask then, what causes the linkage? This is obviously the question we need to ask. What causes this linkage, this series of thoughts that creates this illusion of a ego? And also, why does our mind need to link thoughts together when it essentially lacks nothing? To answer this, we have to look to the Buddha. We have to look to the second noble truth within Buddhism, which comes to the conclusion that all suffering comes from craving. But we need to think about this more than just physical desire, which is a lot of the trap within a lot of, we could say, New Age thought or even Buddhism that's being spread around the world. A lot of people think that this sort of, this suffering from craving is some sort of relationship just to physical desire and the phenomenon around here. Essentially, when we talk about craving, what we really are talking about is we're talking about seeking itself and the nature of seeking which is something that a lot of people don't explore or don't understand. So why does the mind seek? This is a big, big issue within the Eastern schools. Why does the mind seek? What is the nature of the seeking? The nature of the seeking is that the mind is trying to fix itself. It's trying to find a secure home as if it's not secure already. But this is the habit of how the mind operates. It's trying to fix itself and trying to find a secure home. The mind actually is trying to objectify itself because it is uncomfortable with its own formlessness and its own emptiness. We all feel this emptiness within our mind and we then try to fill it up, but we don't understand that this is a bottomless hole that we're trying to fill up and it actually is not the nature of mind to fill it up. This is the habit that, that we are in, that our mind is in. We're in this habit of trying to fill it up, but it's like this hole that can never be filled. It's just, it's an infinite pool of nothingness. You can actually never fill it up. This is what we need to realize, that all of these things you're throwing into your mind, all of these things that you are absorbing, trying to create this sense of self can actually never create this sense of self because the nature of mind is formlessness and emptiness. Because our mind is in this habit, this process of trying to fill it up, trying to objectify itself. This is why we see all around the world, 
people trying to validate their own existence through whatever means to showcase who they believe they are and who they want to be in the eyes of others. But this process is actually self-defeating because the preoccupation with gaining something and proving something keeps the mind away from its non-losing and non-gaining nature. The sense of ego then is a process that attempts to continually secure itself. The ego tries to deny its emptiness by grasping the next thought, the next thought, the next thought, which actually thrusts us into the future and keeps our mind in the future trying to create a reality for ourselves that we believe we are going to experience. So the ego then is basically that which is deferred. The problem for all of us then is that our mind actually believes that its fundamental task is to find and dwell a secure home for itself. So our mind is constantly trying to secure and dwell in this secure place for itself. And we go through this whole crazy process of the linking of thoughts and then the creation of a so-called personality or ego that the mind believes it is because it's actually afraid of its own emptiness and formlessness, as I've said. The great Zen master Wei Hai had a brilliant understanding of what we are talking about. and. The, the habit of our mind trying to find and dwell in a secure place, as he alludes to in this great quote. Should your mind wander away, do not follow it, whereupon your wandering mind will stop wandering of its own accord. Should your mind desire to linger somewhere, do not follow it and do not dwell there, whereupon your mind's questing for a dwelling place will cease of its own accord. Thereby, you will come to possess a non-dwelling mind, a mind which remains in the state of non-dwelling. If you are fully aware in yourself of a non-dwelling mind, you will discover that there is just the fact of dwelling with nothing to dwell upon or not to dwell upon. This full awareness in yourself of a mind dwelling upon nothing is known as having a clear perception of your own nature. A mind which dwells upon nothing is the Buddha mind, the mind of one already delivered, Bodhi mind, uncreate mind. You will have attained to understanding from within yourself, an understanding stemming from a mind that abides nowhere, by which we mean a mind free from delusion and reality alike. The mind's preoccupation with seeking and its identification with various types of phenomena keeps it from realizing its formless, non-dwelling nature. This is why when our mind wants something and it obtains it, it just goes on to the next thing. We've all experienced that before. Oh, I really want that. And then we, we go and buy that. And then once we have it, the high is very empty and not lasting. And then the mind has already moved on to the next thing it wants to obtain. And so this is the process of how our mind operates when we don't realize it's formless and non-dwelling nature. But the fact of the matter is the mind actually wants itself. It wants its true empty nature. But the linkage of thoughts eclipses this from actually happening. And as a result from this process, the mind trying to grasp itself creates the ego. So in that habit of the linkage of thoughts in trying to grasp itself, it creates the ego. This gives our mind some sort of security, but at a tragic cost. 
because fear is generated. The reason is, is because we know that anything that we grasp can be lost. And this is why fear is generated. Hence, our fear of death, our fear of losing our ego, of losing oneself, which will inevitably happen if we don't come to the nature of our true mind. And that's what happens when our mind begins to be caught in this linkage of thoughts. This development of fear happens because we are grasping ourselves so tightly that when death comes, and it does come, that's the time when we truly have to let go of that sense of ego. If we come to the nature of our mind and we have that sense of wisdom, we do come to understand that all things pass away. Nothing is actually permanent within the universe. But the problem for all of us is this fear of losing our ego at death or even now is a sense of suffering that pervades all life, both consciously and unconsciously. In saying all that, what can we do about this? Is there something that we can do to actually come back to the natural way of thinking and also to let go of this fear that is generated through this process? And yes, there is. The natural corrective to this may seem simplistic, but the answer is meditation. And I don't mean like some entrepreneurial meditation that's often promoted by entrepreneurs, you know, sit down for 10 minutes or 20 minutes and just manage the mind. Now, mind management is, is great, don't get me wrong, and mind management is needed in this world. But you need to go deeper into your meditation to understand what I'm talking about today. You need to have more lengthy meditations and more consistent meditations. So we need to make sure our meditation practice is daily, sometimes twice a day if we can fit it in. But once a day is good, but make sure it's lengthy meditation. And when I say lengthy, I mean anywhere in the region between 30 minutes to an hour in one session. You know, when you go to a monastery, about the sweet spot in a monastery is about 45 minutes a monk will sit for, but you'll do that you know, several times a day. But that's kind of the time that you will begin to dive deeper into your mind. 20 minutes is good, yeah, don't get me wrong. 20 minutes you can sort of quieten your mind, but you can't get into those deeper states that you actually start to answer after about the 30 minutes zone, which starts to put you into a deeper samadhi, meditative absorption. What this deeper, lengthy meditation actually does once you practice it for a long time over time is it begins to break up this linkage of thoughts. This is why it's very important to meditate because it, you begin to break up this linkage of thoughts because you're being observant of the thoughts, of the thoughts bubbling up and you are noticing them but not reacting to them, creating this linkage. Now, this is a form of practice that if you continue to do for a lifetime, basically, that you will get out of that habit of following one thought after another after another, creating this sense of ego, which often gets you in trouble because we begin to act emotionally from that place. Meditation then acts as a spiritual solvent for our sticky minds. And yes, our minds are sticky because of this linkage. So this is what meditation does. It begins to thin away this linkage and begins to separate the thoughts because that's what meditation does. It trains your mind to break that habit the mind has got itself in of trying to objectify itself.
and you are bringing the mind back to its true nature, which then evokes a lot of bliss and happiness. Zen master Wampo also speaks about this in this brief quote. Why do they not copy me by letting each thought go as though it were nothing, or as though it were a piece of rotten wood, a stone, or the cold ashes of a dead fire? If we could just listen to Wang Po, we would understand that meditation brings us back to our natural mind, which is empty, spontaneous, and free. Our mind is truly free. Our thinking is essentially non-dual. And this is why Zen developed questions to test the student's mind to see if there is hesitation or immediacy within them. But this is taken further in Zen through Prajna because Prajna implies non-dual spontaneous wisdom or knowledge. So instead of just being immediate as, you know, which is what happens in the beginning of your Zen training, the point of the whole process is to be immediate and also appropriate to the situation. This is the end of the Zen training. This is the end of koans, you, of the Zen questions. You are trying to come to the conclusion without thinking about it. You are not linking up in a series, but you are being spontaneous and also correct. So you are being immediate and also appropriate to the situation. And this is also part of the training in martial arts, which a lot of people don't understand. Martial arts training originally was about this Zen approach, about being Zen, being immediate, but also appropriate to the situation. Then you can tackle anything that comes at you, which you can see is very important in martial arts training. But Zen are training you in this for life for life skills about how to approach life. This is why they are training you like this because they want you to go out into the world and act in this way because this is the natural way of mind. And Zen training, like other Eastern practices, is about bringing you back to the natural mind, which is not a process of linked thoughts, but a process of unsupported thoughts that arise of themselves. But we live in a world of rationality and, you know, we need to have reason and this is what we are trained to do because that is also part of that habitual way of thinking. But reasoning is not necessary for choosing the appropriate response to a situation because what arises spontaneously in the mind will be appropriate if self-hesitation does not interfere. This is prajna. This is how to act naturally and this is how the mind actually functions naturally. It doesn't go through this linkage process as I've mentioned all through this video. So we need to come to the conclusion that we as a person, as a ego, as a separate isolated self at odds with the world is only the result of this linkage of thoughts, these series of linked thoughts that create this illusion of this separate isolated self. When we begin to understand that all the thoughts in the mind are unsupported, they're not dependent on anything, you begin then to separate yourself from this sense of ego, this sense of self, and you begin to come into resonance with the true nature of mind which is empty, spontaneous, and free, which allows you to see the world as it truly is. And when you do come to that place, 
within your mind, then you realize that the nature of the world and the nature of the mind are the same. The nature of the world is empty, spontaneous and free, but it's also non-dual. And you can only come to that conclusion when you have come to the true nature of mind and then you begin to see the world in its true oneness. Shanti, shanti, shanti.